If you've got your Bibles with me, with you, turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua, chapter 1. I understand that the men's Bible study started a study of Joshua just last week, and, uh, and I hope they haven't preached my message already. Chapter 1, let's begin in verse 6. I'll look at just a few verses here. This is God talking to Joshua, and God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. May God richly bless this reading of his word. Pray with me. Father, as we spend these next moments together, our prayer is simply that now we might have open hearts, open minds, open spirits, that your Holy Spirit might be able to speak to us and teach us through his word in these next minutes we have together. We commit this hour to you to that end in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I suspect many of you are like me. Do you find yourself sometimes when you watch the news headlines at the end of the day or when you see them at the beginning of the day, do you find yourself saying to nobody in particular, what? Well, that's crazy. The whole world's gone mad. Anybody besides me do that? Raise your hand. I kind of thought some of you might. Each time the news comes on, we're bombarded by the news of the latest atrocities somewhere in the world. Sometimes the atrocities right here at home. And it seems as if the very fabric of our culture, of our society, of our nation, and of the whole world is sometimes being torn apart, falling to pieces, doesn't it? Gay marriage. Transgender bathroom issues. Increasingly legalizing drugs in our country. Do you know, do you know that more people died of, of heroin in the United States last year than died of guns? A political system in which the opponents running for office seem to be more intent on destroying each other than telling us what they're going to do for us. Abortion rights. Another attack on Christianity over here. Over here, uh, uh, a few more concessions to Islam. And would you have believed 40 years ago or 30 years ago that the day would come in our country when the two people running for the highest office in the land, one of them would have 64% of the people in the country that thought they were untrustworthy, and the other one would have 68% that think they're untrustworthy, and yet they're going to vote for them anyway. A time in which it appears 
at times that our, our government believes more and more that we work for them rather than they for us. Or a time when in our foreign policy it seems like sometimes we punish our friends and our allies and we reward our enemies. And if that's not enough, look at the natural calamities occurring all over the world. Part of the world's on fire, part of it's underwater, earthquakes, volcanoes erupting. When those in our age group look at what's happening in the world, we find ourselves saying often, I do, uh, man, I don't know what's going on out there. And before we can come to grips with one calamity, another one occurs over here. Things are happening so rapidly that before one development really sinks in, another one happens. And just as we mutter, boy, it can't get any worse than this, it does. You know what I'm saying. The question might logically arise, how much longer do we have? How much longer can it last? I'm sure that you, like me, if you spend any time at all on the computer, have seen increasingly on the internet and and on social media, you hear it on some major news stations, and you hear it increasingly from the pulpit, we must be in the last days. You hear that lately? And it, you know, our pastor recently in one of his messages says, we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended. We're in it. It's going on. If you read the Old Testament prophets, if you look at what Paul had to say in some of his letters to, to the young preacher Timothy, uh, to the church in Thessalonica. You read what Peter has to say. Read about John's vision in the book of Revelation. If you read the, the words of Jesus himself in the Mount Olivet Discourse, surely you must find yourself saying at times, that looks like my world. I read a book last year, and I won't give you all the details, but there's a think tank in New York. There are others, but the one in New York is the one the book was about. Uh, a, a group of experts, young geniuses in every possible field, engineering, physics, chemistry, biology, medical world, uh, and even things like the economists and sociologists, psychologists, who get together, they're paid by private funds because some people know we can make money out of this maybe, and their sole job is to find solutions to problems in the world. About a year ago, a group of them sat down after months of study and said, you know what? Nobody in this world, no expert in any field can any longer tell you what's going to happen within the next six months. There are too many variables in our world now. Technology changes too fast. Communications is instantaneous. Countries have open borders. Uh, the, the world trade market is, is global now. And we find that even something, some little innocuous event in some country that you've probably never heard of sends ripples through the whole world. I think about it, I think my weatherman's probably the best example of nobody being able to tell you what's going to happen in the future anymore. My weatherman, when he gives me a seven-day forecast, 
From day two on, there's absolutely no merit to what he has to say. In fact, he changes it every day after that. And oh, the day when he says, listen, you got a 20% chance of rain a day, it's all gonna be down south, we get seven hours of rain. And on the day when he says, you got a 70% chance everybody's gonna get drenched, we can sit outside in our backyard and enjoy it. Why? Because he feeds into his computer statistics from the last hundred years that tell him when these conditions exist, this is what usually happens. But you know what? The world is older than a hundred years. There have been great climactic changes in the past. When he puts his stuff in, he ain't seen everything yet. So, what on earth does this have to do with the book of Joshua? Just this. I believe as Joshua and the Israelites stood on the very edge of the promised land and getting ready to go in, they faced a world just as uncertain as the one you and I face today. I believe God's instructions to them are very appropriate for us today. I say they faced a world uh, of insecurity and clouds and dark corners. Listen, those people had never been a country before. Those people had never built homes or owned property before. They'd never grown a crop before. They had never been out of sight of the tabernacle before. They'd never heard anyone give them orders except Moses before. They'd never have to take for their property a piece of property that somebody else wasn't real eager to give up before. It was going to be a tough world for them to have the promised land. I believe that what you and I face in the months, perhaps the years ahead, leave us facing the same principle that they did. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 4 that everything written before was written for us to teach us. So I think we can learn from this. After all, you know, you and I have a promised land on the other side of all of this stuff we're facing, don't we? I think it's also important for our age group in particular. You know, oftentimes folks in our age group think and sometimes say, you know what, I've done my job. <laughs> I raised my kids, I've got them out, they've got their education, they've got their families, their jobs. It's time for me to relax now and enjoy the fruit of my labor. But folks, it ain't so. It's just not so. You see, we're not finished teaching yet because our children have never gone through what we're about to go through. Our children have never been 70 or 80 or 90 and as believers had to face the world that they're going to have to face. And so we're still teaching. I think we have a new job description. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me. Some ten times in just a few verses he said abide in me. The Greek word there is meno. It means to stay. To live there. To stay there. It's the word that, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus asked Jesus when they said, Jesus, where are you staying? Jesus said, you stay in me. Paul said in Romans Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. James said almost the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Listen, when troubles come, they come for a purpose. They teach you perseverance. 
That word for perseverance is a Greek word, hupomeno. It's a, a form of that word that Jesus used. It means the same thing, except Jesus said stay. Paul and James said keep on staying. Jesus used another one in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. When he spoke to the seven churches, he gave them each a different criticism and each a different praise, but he said one thing in common to all four churches. He said, if you endure, the Greek word is nikao, but it's closely related to the other words. Uh, if Jesus said, first abide in me, stay, and, and Paul and James said, keep on staying, Jesus said to those seven churches, you got to keep on keeping on staying. If you've been watching the Olympics, you know that a lot of runners led for three quarters of the way and then lost the race. If you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, you know they have a bad habit of playing three quarters or half a season. Jesus is saying you've got to be standing at the end to win. So you stay and you keep on staying and you keep on keeping on staying. See, we know how this story ultimately ends, don't we? How will we face it? What are we to do? What does Yahweh God command us to do in light of the fact that we're facing so much uncertainty and danger in the future for us? I find God's instructions again to, to Joshua to be very appropriate here. First, look at the command that he gave him. And God told Joshua that to face this new land and this new world that he was going into, he needed to do two things. Now notice first the repetition. You see how many times in that passage he told Joshua, you be strong and courageous. Not only did he tell him in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 9, down in verse 18 he told him again, be strong and courageous. You know where Joshua got his instructions from? In Deuteronomy 31, Moses told Joshua, Joshua, three times he told him, be strong and courageous. And Joshua later, after the Israelites had defeated the five Amorite kings, told them the same thing, be strong and courageous. Repetition. It emphasizes the point, doesn't it? Now, I, I think you and I learned a good deal of what we know by repetition. I learned my ABCs by repetition. I learned how to spell words by repetition. We had spelling tests. <laughs> I learned mathematics, or we used to call it arithmetic, by repetition. I learned my times table and my plus tables and my minus tables. You don't think that's important? You look at children today, when they send you that letter or that card thanking you for that gift and they're influenced by social media and texting on their telephones and the internet and everything else, you can't help but laugh at their spelling of some very common words because they didn't learn them by repetition like we did. Or you know what's even, what's even funnier? To let a young person wait on you in a store or a restaurant. And the bill is $12.32. 
and you give them a $20 bill, and I promise you, if you're standing at the cash register, you're going to see them take money out and put it back in there half a dozen times before they finally give up and they round it off to the nearest dollar in your favor if it's less than 50 cents and in their favor if it's over 50 cents. I've even had at least twice a young person wait on me in a store and then ask me, do you want your change? Meanwhile, while they're going through their six steps of mathematics trying to figure it out and they give up because they can't do it up here, you just automatically said, yeah, you know what, that's 32 cents in coins that, that I owe you, so you owe me 68 cents back, that's two quarters on a dime and a nickel and three pennies. Because we got it by repetition. And I think that's why God said to, to, to Joshua, Joshua, this is important be strong and courageous. Note also it's a command, it's not a suggestion. God didn't say, you know what, there, there are no conditional words in front of it. Joshua, if you feel like it. Joshua, if you can. He said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. He says first to Joshua, be strong. The Hebrew word that's translated strong here, be strong, is the Hebrew word kazak. I like that word. <laughs> Ted, I like that word. Kazak. Can't you see yourself talking to somebody who's in despair, they're defeated, or perhaps they're just lazy, and you say to them, come on man, get some kazak. I love that word. If you look it up in a Young's concordance, you would find it doesn't say be strong, it says kazak means to become strong. The implication is that's not a natural thing. We're not strong naturally, are we? So, so how do we get strong? How do we get strong? Exercise, discipline, repetition again. There's that thing. Uh, that, that's true in any area of our life. How do you get strong physically? Exercise, discipline, repetition. Oh, about 12 or 13 years ago, Mary and I added on to our home and, and we added on a sunroom, but not as a place for us to sit out in the back and enjoy the beauty of our backyard. We added on as an exercise room. We said, that's what it's gonna be used for. So we filled up half of it with a seven foot hot tub but that's just the pleasure side. The rest of that is that room contains nothing but a universal weight machine or treadmill, and we've since added to it a, a, a stationary bicycle. And I've noticed this. Now, our purpose wasn't for bodybuilding. You know, we're way past that stage. Our purpose was we just evaluated our age at the time, and we said, you know what? We're getting older, and if we don't keep our bodies strong, we're going to be feeble at some point here and not be able to enjoy life anymore, and so we exercise. And I've noticed something about that. If we lay off of it for a while, things happen. And, you know, we frequently do. When we go up to Arkansas twice a year, a lot of times the week before we go, we're too busy getting ready so we don't exercise. Don't exercise while we're up there. The week we get back, we're too busy trying to get things straight again from being gone. And sometimes that three weeks stretches to four, and sometimes five, and sometimes two months, and, 
in three months. When that happens, strange things began to happen. I've noticed that if I stay off that weight machine for a long period of time, if I stand outside on a windy day and raise my arm, that begins to flop in the breeze. <laughs> I'm not joking. If I stay off the treadmill for a long period of time, uh, and then I decided one day, you know what, let's take a walk, particularly if we're up in the mountains in the Ozarks, where there are hills, I don't have to go very far before I'm out of breath and my legs begin to burn, my hips begin to burn, my back hurts. And I've noticed one other strange phenomenon, and I think I'm pretty well educated, but I do not understand this. I know that the molecular structure of my body is completely different than the molecular structure of the clothing in my closet. We're not connected. But I can tell you this for a fact, if I stay off that equipment very long, the clothes in my closet shrink. I, I, can't, I, I put on a pair of trousers, they won't go around my waist. We get strong physically by exercise and by discipline and by repetition. The same thing is true mentally. <laughs> I know some of you could identify with this. If I don't exercise my mind pretty constantly, I find myself doing strange things. I, I, I pick up the soy sauce to put it away in the cabinet and the next thing I know, I'm standing in front of the refrigerator with either the freezer door or the refrigerator door open, holding a bottle of soy sauce, wondering, what am I doing? Anybody besides me ever walk in a room and say, now why did I come in here? <laughs> I had one episode <laughs> earlier this year in which I, I retrieved a screwdriver for some purpose from my work area. And when I went to put it back, I, I dropped it in my pocket because I needed my hands free to open doors and drawers and flip light switches and things. And I got out there, and next thing I know, I'm standing in front of my tools. And I say, what did I come out here for? Was it, maybe it was a, a tape measure or maybe a pair of pliers. I'm on my way back in the house with the tape measure and a pair of pliers when the screwdriver in my pocket sticks in my arm, and I suddenly realize what I'm doing here. So I have to exercise my mind to be strong. I do, that, I do that by reading. When I find myself faltering a little bit, I, I become a voracious reader for a while. I'll read five books at a time as long as they're not related. I'll read a fiction, a, a, a biography, a, a, a current events, a theology book, a devotional book. And sometimes because I find I'm just not analyzing things and thinking straight, I find I have to get out the puzzles. I have to work puzzles for a while, crosswords, cryptograms, sudokus, anything to get my mind thinking logically again. You know, we can apply it in any area. It's true socially. If I withdraw from my normal social circle for a period of time for some reason and then I find myself with them again, I'm just not comfortable for a while in the conversation until we get back to where we used to be. And folks, it's true spiritually, and that's what Josh was talking about here. How do we get strong spiritually? What's the, what's the equipment we use to get strong spiritually? Now, you know what they are. Prayer. And I'm not talking about that five-minute prayer we utter at 6.45 in the morning every day or, or 10.30 at night after we, after we go to bed every night in which we mysteriously change our our language from the one we normally speak to one 
people used to speak in England 400 years ago, King James in English, and we pray by that format we learned in a discipleship course 25 years ago, and we go through the prayer list. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having intimate times with God. I'm talking about abiding in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about living and practicing His presence. That's prayer. After all, you know, uh, sometimes our prayer life consists of number one, telling God what we want, and number one, telling Him how to fix it and do it. And a part of prayer ought to be listening to Him instead of just talking all the time. After all, prayer is not a monologue. It's a dialogue. It's an intimate conversation between us and God. It's in that kind of prayer that we become strong. Or or I think a second tool for getting strong is just being with God's people at every opportunity. In church for sure. But I think we need to be with other believers in between those times. You know, there are some people in the world that that don't get to meet together congregationally very often because they get in trouble if they did, and they find their strength in between times is just being with other Christians who encourage them. I find this too. I believe that, that other Christians is one of the four primary ways that God speaks to us, through the pastor to be sure, through teachers, yeah, But I've found in my personal life that often a word from God comes to me when I'm just in a fellowship with another believer and all of a sudden out of the blue that believer says, Jim, did you ever think God might want you to do so and so? Bingo, I've been wrestling with that for weeks. We need to be with other Christians. Uh, Another tool is service. And I don't mean offices in the church. I don't mean having membership in three or four committees and holding this office and that office. Those are great. But I'm talking about something else. Paul said three times. He said in, in, in the book of Romans chapter 12. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said in Ephesians chapter 4. Every believer at his rebirth is given at least one special gift And that gift is not for him at all. Not for his glory, not for his edification, not for his pleasure. That gift is for the benefit of the other parts of the body of Christ. And I've said this many times in my Sunday school class. I know they're probably closing their ears right now. Listen, if we we take ourselves and keep ourselves for any reason at all out of the body of Christ... We're doing two things. Number one, I'm depriving everybody else of what God gave me just for them. You know what that's like? That's like buying a present for somebody and deciding you're going to keep it yourself. Or the other thing we're doing is we're depriving everybody else who God gave a special gift for me. We're depriving them the ability to use that. How would you like it if if people got together for your benefit and everybody bought a present, but you weren't there, so they decided to just keep their presents. That's what we're doing now. Uh, finally, the, 
And I saved it for last because I think it's most important. The greatest equipment we have for becoming strong is this. Why do I say that? Because it's from that word of God that we find out about all the other disciplines, isn't it? It's the word of God that tells me who to pray to. A holy God to be sure. But I like what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He said the Holy Spirit works at bringing you into sonship. And you can cry out to God, Abba. Father, that's what Jesus did in Gethsemane. When he cried out, Abba, he's using the more familiar word for Father, Daddy. And and Paul says we can have that intimate relationship with God too because now we're children of God. The Bible tells me who to pray to. It tells me how to pray. James says you, you pray with fervor. You pray believing that God hears you and is going to answer. Paul tells us, When to pray? Continuously. Prayer is not a time that we set to pray. We ought to be able to enter into such an intimate relationship with God that prayer comes and goes during our day just as naturally as breathing. The Bible is the one place that tells us not to forsake assembling with other Christians in Hebrews. The Bible is the place that tells us about those spiritual gifts that we have. Those three lists, they're all different. I believe there are some that aren't even there. And I'm not talking about standing in front of people and preaching or or, uh, deaconing or anything else. You know what some of those gifts are? Exhortation. Encouragement. What an encouragement we get from those we go close to in our relationship with the Lord. Faith. Sometimes people are moved by our faith when theirs runs out. I remember two churches started in my home in, a living, in our living room through the years. And I remember on both occasions when it came time to build or get a building, there were always those that said, we can't afford this. We can't do this. But there was always somebody in the group that said, oh, yes, we can. If God has called us to do this, we can do it. God says to Joshua, Joshua, be strong. Secondly, he says, be courageous, or even very courageous. And as I studied that word the other day, I I noticed something that I had never noticed before. There was a secondary meaning to the word courageous at every place I looked. And it was an unlikely thing, the word confirmed. And I asked myself, what in the world has confirmed got to do with being courageous? I don't understand that. Can't make a connection. Finally, I gave up and I... I took my trusty Webster's Dictionary off the shelf, and bingo, there it was. Webster says of confirmed, being so fixed in habit as to be unlikely to change. Marked by a long continuance and likely to persist. I like that. God says to Joshua, and he says to you and I as we face this time before us, before we reach our land of promise, Joshua, be consistent, practice doing the right thing all the time, and do so until it becomes so much of your response to the world that you do it without even thinking anymore. You just be who the Word of God has called you to be. Do what's right. Any man or woman that's ever been in the military, if you ever went through boot camp, 
You know that you just learn to follow orders and to do it until it just becomes an automatic thing for you. You don't think, and that's what a hero is, isn't it? A hero is not somebody that, that, that somehow conjures up something extra. He just stays longer than everybody else and does what he's been trained to do. Be strong and contagious. <laughs> Courageous. Then there's a second thing he says here, and it's woven through the fabric of his encouragement here. He gives us the method, I think, and again it involves the scriptures. Look at what he says. He says, first, we need to be a doer of the word. See that? Verse 7, obey all the law and don't turn from it to the right or left. In verse 8, be careful to do everything in it. I am literally mystified today by those who profess to be Bible-believing saints who treat the Word of God as if it's a menu in a Chinese restaurant. Choose one from column A and one from column B. I'm amazed at the gyration some people go deciding which scriptures to follow, which ones are a requirement, and which ones you can ignore. And God told Joshua, all the law, Joshua. James echoes his major thought here too in, in his letter when James says, be doers of the word and not just hearers. It's not enough to talk the talk, folks. If we're going to be courageous and strong, we're going to go in and we're going to get through what we've got in front of us. We've got to be doers of the word. Not only does it say be doers, secondly he says be a teller of the word. Verse 8, God tells Joshua to keep the word always on his lips. One of the translations says, don't let, the, don't let the word depart from your lips. Don't let the law depart from your lips. And some people say, that means I'm not supposed to talk about it. No, 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 it means you never quit talking about it. You realize how simple our life would be, you and me. If we so immersed ourselves in the word of God, that we used it for the deciding criteria in every decision we have to make. Now, think about that just a minute. Got a moral problem? Well, the Bible says. Got an ethical problem? The Bible says. A relationship problem? The Bible says. A financial problem? The Bible says. A political decision to make? The Bible says. The Bible says. How about the whole issue of, of, of witnessing to other people through the Word? I have people tell me all the time, well, you know what, I, can't, I just can't do that. I can't remember all these scriptures, and, and, uh, and it's not my thing. And I say, baloney. Listen, you take yourself a Bible, and inside the back cover, you just write one thing, page 1076, or whatever page it is. You go to that, and you've underlined Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says everything that was created was created by Christ and for Christ. Right up at the top of the page, we are created for a purpose. And then page 10, 25. <laughs> you turn to page 10, 25, you've got Romans 3, 23 underlined. And you write at the top of the page, we rebel against our purpose. Page 1028, Romans 6, 23, there's a price to pay. You get my, my picture? You mark your Bible. You don't have to memorize everything in the world to be an effective witness to lead people to Christ. Use a marked Bible. Tell the story. Thirdly, he says, after he says, be a doer of the word, be a teller of the word, he says, dwell in the word. 
He says to Joshua here, Joshua, you meditate on this day and night. I don't know about you, but those are the only two time frames I've got in my life. That's all the time. He says, meditate on it day and night so you'll be able to do everything in it. Because all the other disciplines of prayer and and being with other Christians get their basis from the scriptures. I think this is the essential instruction. It can't be done by a 15-minute devotion every day, folks. Or by studying the Sunday school lesson. Or by taking notes on the pastor's sermon. It's got to be all of those and more. This is total immersion. God's telling Joshua. You know, reread the Bible for different purposes. We need to recognize that. Sometimes we read the Bible devotionally. I hope all of you do. And let me encourage you. You get a very modern translation for your devotional reading. So that when you read that, you don't have to worry. I wonder what that means. It's clear. You can tell what that means. You don't have to worry about anything else. For devotional reading. And when you want to study the Bible, which is another thing we do, a good translation like New American Standard is good. Sometimes we want to do research in the Bible. We come across a subject that says, you know what, I want to know everything there is to know about that. If I were to ask you how many, things, how many times the Bible talks about heaven, you'd say it doesn't say very much. Randy Alcorn wrote a book that thick about heaven, all based on Scripture. There are some wonderful Bibles available today, study Bibles that have more packed in them. I I have replaced the usage of half the books on my bookshelf by having three or four good study Bibles because they've got everything in it, commentaries. They've got word studies in them. They've got concordances and maps. All of these are valid. And all of them have a place for our daily reading. We need to immerse ourselves in it. I really like this devotional reading. And I encourage everybody to have a one-year Bible in a modern translation. I'm serious. I studied the Bible. I have an undergraduate degree in Bible. I have a seminary degree. 28 years ago, and I preached hundreds of sermons and, and taught thousands of Sunday school lessons. 28 years ago, Mary and I bought our first one-year Bible. And we have read the Bible through now in our 28th year. And when I immerse that in prayer every day, I promise you, I never have a day or a reading go by in which God doesn't give me a fresh word. I pray before him, asking God, God, open my eyes that I might see what this really says, my ears that I might hear your voice in it. My heart, that I might sense and know your heart on every issue that I encounter here. My, 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 my spirit, that I might think spiritual thoughts about this. My, my spirit, that I, your Holy Spirit might be able to teach me directly. He gives a command, he, he tells us how to get there, and then he tells us why. He, he's got two things left, he says here, and I'll finish with this in just a minute, Brother Ted. Why does God give us those orders? Be strong. Be courageous. Do the word. Tell the word. Dwell in the word. Two reasons here. It says in the first place, God told Joshua to do so 
because he was going to keep the promise he gave about taking them in the promised land. He said, Joshua, Joshua, if you get all excited about all this stuff going on around you and take your eyes off this, you're going to fail. Listen, I'm going to take you in. I promised I would. You and I have the same promise. On the other side of all that stuff that looms in our future, there's a promised land. And unless God calls me home before, or the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts, when I go through all that stuff in front of me, God's going to take me through it. He promised he would. Those same prophets that spoke of judgment and, and, uh, and rescue in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul's words about end times. Jesus' words about the end times. In all of those times, the promise is, I'll be there at the end. Because I promised you I would. And that's the second thing we learn out of this. God told Joshua, don't be discouraged. That's the opposite of being courageous. Because the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Listen. I got an email a few weeks ago. that just gnawed at me every sense. In which somebody said, all right, Christians. It's time for you to get off your knees and quit praying and go out there and change things. I want to tell you, it is not. It is time to double up on that time on your knees. Listen, if what lies in front of us is part of God's plan of the ages, if what lies in front of us is the end times, not all the power on this earth and not all the power in hell can stop it. But we can go through it victoriously. God says, I won't leave you or forgive you uh, or forsake you. Jesus told us the same thing in the Great Commission, didn't he? Surely I'll be with you always. You become strong. You be courageous. You be disciplined. You be consistent and understanding when the difficult days come as you prepare to enter eternity with me, and I will be there. You'll never be alone. When things are at their worst, I'll be there. Abide in me. Stay there. Persevere, endure, and always know I'm right here. Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus, he said it this way when he admonished them with similar words about being strong. He said, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For your struggle is not against flesh. What lies in front of us is not our fight against the world. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted to the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming hours of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Oh, my friends, the headlines are frightening. The future is filled with cracks and shadows and unsure turns. Our world appears to be falling apart. 
It can be scary to say the least. It can be hopeless and despairing to say the most. Or it can be for the Christian just the eve of what we've lived our entire life for. Hope fulfilled. Yahweh, our God, says, go in. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Keep your eyes on the other side. Stay. Keep on staying. Keep on keeping on staying. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we find power there to face everything that Satan and his minions can throw at us. Help us as a people and as individuals to be strong, to be courageous, to be doers of the word in in the world around each one of us, to be tellers of the world, and to spend our time there in deep fellowship and learning from you. Thank you, Father, for every promise you've given us. Help us to live victoriously rather than defeated. In Jesus' name, amen.